you are now entering the world of a movie review. A world full of drama, joy, ridicule, movie spoilers, unpopular opinions, and adult humor for as far as the eye can see. Welcome to An Evening at the Movies. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to everybody's favorite movie-based podcast. This is An Evening at the Movies. And you guys know the drill. This is the show where we eat the stale popcorn, we drink the watered-down soda, and we discuss all of our favorite movies and why we love them. But before we can get to that, I have a couple of things I need to get out in the open before we get going. One, first of all, Merry Christmas to everybody, as this is episode one of our 2023 Christmas Day double feature. So whichever order you're listening in, Make sure you check out the other episode that will be dropping at the same time as this. But we cannot discuss a movie without having a guest here for me to discuss the movie with because, as we know, for almost the last three years, I don't like doing solo episodes. So I have to have somebody here to bounce ideas back off of. So we are joined today by our first time guest. And I asked for help with pronunciation last night so we're going to try and do it right today we are joined by kate laverne you got it right yay it's a christmas miracle (laughs) uh thank you laverne like laverne and shirley which i definitely heard all the time growing up yeah i can imagine being in about that same general age window that I'm sure you and I both are in. Yeah, that would probably be a hot button. Yeah. Teasing button to push. Yeah, I used to so, get asked where she really was. So she's uh, she's six feet under now. Don't ask. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. So would, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners and let the listeners know what all you're about. Sure. Uh, so again, my name is Kate Laverne. I am a stand-up comedian performing all over the East Coast. I'm also a children's book author of Mommy Needs Coffee, which is available on Amazon, and Hot Mess Express, which should be coming out prior to Christmas. I keep having to push it back, so at some point that will come out too. Um, both books are children's books, but they are fun to read for adults too. It's nothing inappropriate. It's just something silly. So I will say this because when um, Kate and I booked this recording session, I actually did go out and I bought Mommy Needs Coffee and I read it. And I'm not going to lie. And I'm not saying this just because she's here on the show and, you know, I'm trying to suck up because that's not the case. (laughs) Um, Mommy Needs Coffee actually is, I thought, I felt like a really good book. It can definitely be something you can sit down and read with your younger child but even as an adult you can sit down and you can appreciate the fact that you know it's all about you know the different aspects of the day about getting things going and all of this but mommy needs coffee yep and at the end mommy leaves her coffee maybe mommy gets her coffee maybe mommy doesn't 
cliffhanger. Tune in for part two. Yeah. If you have $8.49 in an Amazon account. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I definitely highly recommend if you like just sitting back and looking at some pretty awesome artwork and reading a good story. I definitely recommend going out and picking up the book. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely not a problem. So as we said, or as I said in the intro, um, this is episode one or two, depending upon the order of which you're doing it. But this is Christmas double feature day. So, and it is also episode number 191 on the official episode counter for the entire show. So just so you guys know, nine more episodes and we'll be at 200. So it's so exciting. I, I'm really excited. I've got ideas marinating in the back of my brain right now as to what we want to do for that episode. It may or may not fall on our third anniversary that's coming up in February. I don't know, but that may or may not actually pertain to a special announcement that I'm making in the other half of the Christmas Day double feature episode. So another reason why to tune in and listen to that episode as well. So if you read to the end, you may find out. <laughs> yes. So, um, we're going to be discussing the, well, truth be told, it's probably the greatest Christmas movie of all time, and probably one of the greatest movies of all time, if not one of the greatest, I mean, it's in the top 20 for greatest movies of all time, so, but we're going to be discussing the Frank Capra classic, It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, and uh, for as far as greatest movies of all time, too, and, um, I think we were talking a little bit before the show about the different rankings, and um, it's interesting. Uh, when I was looking, trying to do a little bit of research before the episode to make sure I had my numbers correct, some of these numbers weren't even coming from American sources. I think the BBC had listed it as one of the top top movies as well, or the number one Christmas mm -hmm. movies, uh, which is crazy, too, because while... While a chunk of the movie is set at Christmas, I don't know that you could say the majority of it takes place during Christmas. The buildup is to an event that happens to fall during the Christmas Christmas season, during Christmas Eve, which I always found is kind of interesting. So it really is a film you can watch year round. It just happens to have a climax that takes place on Christmas Eve. I mean, I guess technically you could, this could be the original Is Die Hard a Christmas? Christmas movie debate movie because I think it kind of falls in that a, a little bit it, except that I will say the themes of Die Hard aren't really aligned oh, yeah. with the themes of Christmas no. whereas It's a Wonderful Life definitely has a little bit of that Christmas redemption arc without the mass murder type of a deal yeah like the um, only terrorist is, is Mr. Potter yeah and even then he's still you know, wheelchair bound and he's not, he can wreak havoc with you, but yeah, he's not going to just, he's not like Alan Rickman. No, no. Although the nice thing, at least it shows that no matter 
what your ability, you can still be evil if you really try. Oh, yeah, you can. But, yeah, like Kate said, though, I mean, technically, the bulk, well, the main Christmas part of the movie is really only probably the last half an hour of the movie with maybe a little bit sprinkled in throughout the first, what, hour and a half? I mean, I think the the, very, the first scene takes place, I mean, it opens over uh, Bedford Falls, and it, mm-hmm. it's Christmas Eve. It's the same time that we're ending on. But that opening scene um, where there's all the boys are, are sledding and George's little brother goes through the ice, Spoiler alert, if you haven't watched the movie in the last 80 years, he lives. Um, but when he goes through the ice, I mean, at that point, it is it is Christmas time. But you don't we don't see the holiday again until until we get to that that climax. They don't really hearken back to it. It's all sort of spring, summer, fall. Yeah, which. I actually kind of sort of find very refreshing and we'll actually get to that in our discussion. But um, really quick before we do that, though, some other interesting facts about the movie that people may or may not know. Um, As Kate said, the movie released in January of 1947. was directed by Frank Capra. It had a $3.18 million budget and only made $3.3 million at the box office, which technically in 1947... $3.3 $3.3 million is a lot of freaking money. Yes. it was The budget itself was really sizable for the time, too. Yeah. Well, okay. And we will get more into the whole inflation aspect of stuff because there is another monetary value that will pop up its ugly head in here. And one of the sites that I did find actually translated that amount of money into what today's standards would be. So, um, as far as Rotten Tomato goes, my most favorite website in the world, (laughs) would you like to wager a guess as to what you think the Rotten Tomato score is? The critic score or the audience score? Well, I mean, technically, neither one of them is that far apart from each other. Okay. Either one. Either one. isn't I think the highest of all time is like Toy Story at 94. So I'm going to go 89. Critics score on Rotten Tomato was 94%. Ah, oh, dang. Audience score with over 100,000 reviews, 95%. So it is still technically one of the highest rated movies on Rotten Tomatoes. The one time Rotten Tomatoes actually probably got it right. Mm-hmm. Just because I've found more often than not, especially when it comes to like my favorite movies that we've talked about in the last mm-hmm. 100, 191 episodes, that they generally don't get It's not always horribly wrong, but it's generally not close to what I feel an effective score is for the movie, though. Yeah, I well, I think some of that too has to do with what's being looked for or looked at as a like a metric of success or storytelling, and that doesn't always translate to what really makes a good film. It just translates to what critically makes the most sense when you break it down by the numbers. Yeah, and I mean, 
not everybody has the same taste and that's generally the rule we have for movies on this show as well we're willing we're willing to do revisits on movies that we've already done before because of the fact that i can have a different guest on that may have a different emotional connection to a movie that we didn't have the last time that we talked about a movie so definitely anybody who's willing to come on the show and wants to discuss a movie i don't care if it's something we've done or not go ahead and pick it and we'll do it and we'll have a great episode but we'll go down that road when we get to the end of the episode so so um also um like we were discussing before um the show as well you would think as being one of the well in 1998 it's a wonderful life was um ranked number 11 on the american film institute greatest movie of all time list it dropped to number 20 in 2007 and it is still ranked number one as the most influential american films of all time you would think with all of that kind of notoriety that it would have all kinds of academy award recognition and all of that but it was nominated five times and did not win one academy award and it's one of the greatest movies it's ranked higher on the AFI list than the movie that beat it at the Academy Awards that year. And I think it it either did win an award, not at the Academy Awards, a separate award, or it was nominated for an additional award for the special effects used, uh, specifically for the snow, which is, again, yeah. part of, you know, it had such a big budget. Apart from being the, at the time, largest set ever built, um, in an American movie studio. I, I don't remember. It was something like three city blocks long for that main street area. Uh, yeah, and yeah. it took up like the entire, the entire back lot. But the, the cool thing with the special effects with the snow. So Frank Capra as a filmmaker tried to make things as realistic for his actors as possible. And that meant doing things like filming the audio as live as you could. So snow at the time was made by spray painting cornflakes which if you've ever walked on them because you've had a toddler or a dog shake them all over your kitchen floor, they're a little loud and you couldn't get good audio. So they used a bunch of different things to kind of get the snow. Um, I had, I've tried to look up what it was specifically. I think they used some of like the actual snow that you would use. Um, like if you were at like a resort, like making some actual snow, um, although they filmed in July. So obviously there was some melting there. Um, some of the things that you'd find in like a, a, I guess, flame retardant, like you'd see in a fire extinguisher, uh, and some other materials, oh, at least, yeah, and soap and water. And then they shot it out so it would fall and it would be quiet and it looked like snow on camera. So I just thought that was really cool. I had never thought about the whole cornflake analogy, how walking on cornflakes would be insanely loud. I mean, I would assume that um, as a mom and having kids and build cereal all over the place, you would probably have a little bit more understanding as to how loud that could be. It's very loud. Uh, dog food also very, very loud. My kid dumped our entire bag of dog food across our kitchen earlier this weekend and like down the hall and into the living room and like in the water for the Christmas tree, which is fine. My house smells great. 
And the dog the food is for, by the way, is whining upstairs. So if she's too loud, let me know and I can go I can go put her someplace else. Oh no, you're fine. Your dog actually is being a lot more friendly for the recording than others have been in the past. So I'm not it, it's not that big of a deal. Um Okay. I I appreciate it. She's a little so, squeaky because she's we're still finding dog food, and I don't want her to get sick. So unless we're right with her, she has to be in her crate right now. Oh, yeah, and that's probably not very exciting for her. No, no. So, um, okay. So, like I said, with the whole box office translation of numbers, still $3.3 million in 1947 is a lot of freaking money. And realistically, I would like to have $3.3 million in my bank account right now. And it's, what, 2023? But um, one of the main plot lines of the movie, kind of sort of skipping ahead, is the fact that the Bailey family lost $8,000. Mm-hmm. Which, by today's standard, you would it's still a lot of money, but it's not as astronomically large as what it would have been back then. But to translate that into today's standards for people, um, $8,000 back then would be the equivalent of somebody losing like $137,000 today. Well, and I think if you look at George's salary, I don't remember the number specifically, but he mentions it. Uh, how much he makes a year. And if I remember right, it's a little more than half the 8,000. I think he makes 14,000. I, I, let me look it up real quick. So I'm gonna, this could bother me. Um, but Mr. Potter is interviewing him, trying to get him to take a job. And he offers him um, 20,000 a year. Yeah, I think it's, yeah. And it's, it's an astronomical jump. I think he originally is making 15,000 a year, something like that. Let me just check double George Bailey. Salaries. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still his for his job. That is, yeah, a lot less than what I make doing my job, and my job is far less significant than that. So, you know, that says a lot. Yeah, the and the equivalent amount that Mr. Potter offers him in today's dollars, I know that's about three hundred and fifty thousand dollars today. Damn. Yeah. yeah. I don't I don't make anywhere near three hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. If I made I, if I made that I'd be a very happy person. I we're we're that's a pipe dream. I you take a freaking zero off of that three hundred and fifty thousand and I probably no. That sounds about closer to realistic. Yeah, that's probably closer to about what yeah. Today's standard, but yeah, no. But um so yeah, one hundred thirty-seven thousand dollars is a lot of freaking money, and you can understand how devastating it was for them mm-hmm. to have that money turn up missing. Slash, I guess, spoiler alert. Um, but it's been eighty years, so it's not really a spoiler alert. Um, stolen or found slash stolen. By mm-hmm. Mr. Potter. Yeah. Used to 
try and completely destroy the family from top to bottom. Yeah. And I think it's important too. It's not that he's even like, he's lost his family's money. He's lost his business's money. So he's lost the money of the people who are investing in the building and loan. And that it's, it's so, if it, it, it turns into uh like, it turns into being fraud, which is what Potter accuses him of. Obviously knowing that that's not what he's doing. Um, but it's, it, it, I mean, it's a, it's a ton of money and it does, you know, hit home. And of course, this is also taking place right after World War II. We're coming out of the Great Depression a few years before then. I mean, during this period of time, not only is money something that a lot of people are, are maybe you know, struggling with a little bit, but it's symbolizing stability. So, you know, losing that stability, losing that, that faith, that trust of his of his, uh, his customers. I mean, there's all of that going along with just having lost the money. And that's why I think you see him lose his shit on uncle Billy or lose his, yeah. his stuff on uncle Billy, because this is, this doesn't just mean you know, he says like bankruptcy and, and jail and prison and all these, these things. Um, and just the ramifications of that are, are, it's so much more than just, Oh, I lost, you know, this amount of money. I'll have to get a loan and then pay it back. It's, it's a huge, a, a, a huge pivotal pivotal uh negative point that, in his life it, at the end of the day it's going ultimately it's going to affect everybody that's tied into that office i mean whether it's their customers whether it's everybody that works there the whole family i mean it's one big snowball effect rolling with the snowball rolling down the hill mm-hmm so it does kind of make me think too about so the whole a, a big part of the movie is about how George had to give up his goals and his dreams to do what was right for his family and then by doing that is doing what's right for other people in the town so in a way not only are we watching someone who's just you know about to lose his business but he had to give up everything he had wanted in the first place for this business and then to have that tiny piece of success potentially ripped away and destroying everything he's built, that's that's a that's a heavy load. Well, yeah, he's basically in the midst of losing, for lack of a better metaphor, losing his life because he's already given up however many years of you know his adulthood mm -hmm. and sacrificed for that, and now all of a sudden, you know, everything he's worked for and scratched for and you know, try to achieve. And now it's all, you know, going up in a big poof of smoke for lack of a better term. Yeah. Okay. That's much better. So, um, let's see. I've got a whole list of freaking notes here. Um, One of the things that I actually found fascinating while doing my research was um, Jimmy Stewart actually wasn't sure he wanted to actually do the movie after World War II. He actually had to be talked into doing it by Lionel Barrymore. Yes. And he also was very anxious about having to kiss Donna Reed because it was going to be his first on-screen kiss since coming back from war. 
And so when they shot that, it's done in one take. And they were basically told to just go for it and see see what would happen. And when, when they were done, um, I believe it was considered so passionate, they actually had to cut out part of it. It was too much. Well, yeah, I mean, everybody nowadays talks about the whole how uncomfortable it must be trying to have to do something like that. I mean, at least it was only a kiss and they didn't actually have to try and do something else. Oh, yeah. But well, different times. <laughs> yeah, they didn't do that stuff in the movies back then. One of the other things that I actually did find um, fascinating, too, was um, if you actually pay attention on screen while you're watching the movie there's actually points in the movie where you may see like beads of sweat pouring down jimmy stewart's face because well you could you have to think if this movie came out you know around the holidays in 47 46 47 you know it obviously had, had to be filmed months prior, which would be right smack dab in the middle of the summer, which so happened to coincide with a heat wave at the same time. Yeah, I believe they ended up shooting in July. At one point, uh, Frank Capra actually gave everyone the day off because they needed to recover from the heat. And in particular, the bridge scene, you can see Jimmy Stewart's literally soaked in sweat. And as a kid, I just chalked it up to you're, you're sweaty when you're running in the snow because you're wearing layers. I don't, I don't know about you. I live in New Jersey, yeah. so we, we get a decent amount of snow. And, you know, you're running around in that, you will sweat. And the fact that, like, the snow lands on you and you're hot and it melts. So it, it just – it made sense to me. But watching it as an adult, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's a little much. And it makes well, sense. I'm not going to lie. I'm an out-of-shape adult, and there's – no reason for me to be running around in the snow because I would probably fall and break an ankle, break my leg, whatever the case may be, because I'm that accident prone. But I mean, it does totally 100% make sense though, because I was a kid growing up and playing in the snow and you always have the big heavy coats and the big heavy like snow pants and the boots and all. And, yeah, you're going to be physically active. Yeah. It's He's no different. It, well, yeah, it's no different than taking a like a bottle of soda out of, or a can of soda out of the refrigerator. As the warmth gets to it, it starts to have condensation on the outside of the can or the bottle. Yeah. And you think, too, he's got a couple of drinks in him at that point. He was driving drunk a minute ago. So, you know. If anyone had a reason to sweat, maybe even out of anxiety, you just drunk True. drove and lost a bunch of money. I mean, that's a good reason for some extra perspiration there on the side of a bridge. Right. Well, and um, also, we hear it in evening at the movies, do not condone drinking and driving. No, terrible idea. By any stretch of the imagination. So if you're going to have a few please turn your keys over to a responsible adult and allow them to get you home safely at the end of the night. Uh, let's see. What else do we have here? Um, 
Lang Syne was actually not the original final song in the movie, actually. It was supposed to be Ode to Joy. Mm-hmm. Which I didn't realize. Yeah. It's, it, it's funny if you think of the end scene and then you play Ode to Joy in your head over it, it does not work. You definitely picked the right song. Yeah. So I'm glad they definitely changed that because, well, at the same time, we've all grown up with it being what it is. So mm -hmm. you can't, I can't imagine as many times as I've seen this movie, it being anything else. Uh, maybe some death metal. <laughs> yeah, that would, yeah, that would be an experience. I feel, you know, I could see Zuzu doing some screamo at the end. Teacher says! You know, it fits. <laughs> oh, that would be freaking hilarious. Busting out with her sitting there in her dad's arms and the bell jingles and, yeah, she starts singing freaking Ozzy. I feel like that would be a very positive way to end the movie. <laughs> Bite the head off a dove. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Fa -la, 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 la So as we were kind of sort of talking about too earlier, um, obviously at some point there had to have been some kind of successful emergence for the movie. And it really didn't come for probably 23 years until the movie started regularly getting played on TV in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. So. And that was by accident because the copyright last lapsed. Yeah. So it became public domain and it should not have, but then it's been able to spread even more because of it. Well, and part of that also as well, you didn't always have as much movies being played on TV up until probably the late 60s, early 70s. Mm -hmm. So as TV networks are starting to develop and their outreach is spreading across the country, then yeah, that would become more of a necessity then because as you start to develop more channels, then you have more things that you have to have to fill the time on those channels. It's one whole big nightmare. Not necessarily, it, I mean, it led to what we have today with you know, 800 channels of nothing to watch. Yeah, I mean, it is a wonderful life. <laughs> it is. Uh, oh. oh, yeah, there's that one too. Um, at one point, this film was actually flagged as being considered communist. Mm-hmm. Because it's uh, anti-capitalist towards Mr. Potter. Mm -hmm. So by that standard, then, would other movies like A Christmas Carol be considered communist as well? I mean, I think if you really want to, you can make anything fit the lesson plan. And I think there were a lot of people using excuses 
during that period of time to connect things to communism for other reasons. So, I mean, conceivably, yes and no, because it's not Scrooge stopping his wealth. He raises the salary of his employee, but he continues on with his business practices. There's not a group of people coming together to help him. He's helping himself. So that still kind of pushes the capitalist narrative. Like, really, if you think about A Christmas Carol, which which inspired, in a way, It's a Wonderful Life, as beautiful as a story as that is, Scrooge doesn't really help anyone besides himself and Bob Cratchit in the book itself. If you watch the, the movie Scrooge with Albert Finney, I mean, you see him, I think he gets rid of some of the, the rents or something like that that are owed. But realistically, it's just a person who runs a business than running a slightly better business. So, yeah, I get, yeah, by that standard, then, yeah, it would still be in favor of capitalism. Then, um, I did not realize that up until 2015, there was a potential rumor being thrown out of a possible sequel. It would be called, like, it's been a wonderful life, part two, the divorce. I don't remember exact. There actually was a title that was thrown out. I believe it was It's a Wonderful Life, the rest of the story. I mean, I don't know that I would want to watch that. Because I feel like the rest of the story shows them growing up through the 50s and the 60s. And I, I mean, do we really know you to know what Zuzu got up to by that age? Well, I mean, but yeah, by that standard, you know, well, at the end of the day, it's still, you know, something like a lot of people are developing opinions because of like the way things come out nowadays in Hollywood, where you're starting to get a lot of sequels to movies where it's been 30 or 40 years since the original came out. Yeah. So it's like, okay, it's been, you know, what, 80, almost 80 years since this movie came out. Yeah. Obviously, you're not going to have the original cast because they're literally all gone. Yeah. So, and at the end of the day, the story that you were trying to tell is about him at that time dealing with everything that he's having to deal with and you know ultimately wishing he wasn't born and yeah. then learning the lesson that you know if you weren't here look at everything how poorly everything else could have gone yeah, and there have been movies that have been made with a similar basis. So um, one of my favorites, it's called The Family Man with Nicolas Cage. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. So that's that's based um, loosely on this same concept. And again, kind of a little bit on the, um, which it all sort of circles back to that same Christmas Carol. What if you made different choices or what if you had a second chance or what would it look like if you weren't around? 
So it's mm. it's still that concept of a, of a glimpse with an angel. And I think rather than a sequel and knowing what comes after that, I mean, I, I think doing different treatments to it, I think does a better service for it. Because again, that story arc, like you're saying, it, when you're watching this person's journey to that point and then their redemption arc and coming back and realizing, you know, the power that that one person's life has to positively impact other people's. And I, I think once you've told that story, jumping forward from there, I, I don't know that you really get any other benefits of storytelling out of that. I don't think you do. And honestly, as great as this movie is, this is something that needs to just be left alone. Just let it be. I agree. It, it's, it's an amazing movie in every facet of the story that it tells. So just leave it alone. Don't fuck with the classics. My favorite four words. No. I agree completely. So. And I mean they're classics for they're classics for a reason. And in this case, even again, like different treatments to it are one thing, but looking at this as the original, I mean that's the time period it takes place in, I think it's 1919. So winter of 1919 through, I guess, Christmas Eve 1945. Once more, you're really hitting on the first half of the century and all these these big events that happened that are sort of peppered throughout. It's a little bit like Forrest Gump in that way. Like, again, you get the mention of the Spanish flu um, yeah. when his boss's son dies at college. He dies from influenza. You see the... They, the the stock market crash, the run on the banks, you see World War II. I mean, it really is just a microcosm of that time and how people grew, changed, and developed. And even the idea of a building and loan, I mean, those that type of banking setup isn't really a thing anymore. So yes, you could, again, do other treatments to it. And there have been, once more, Family Man's amazing. But this exists where and when it does for a reason. And that's why I think it's so enjoyable because you can watch it with the nostalgia. You can watch it with the knowledge of the time period being what it was. And even though at the time it was a contemporary drama for us, it's more of a period piece. Yeah. But I still don't feel like it's too overly dated to where we can't relate to what's going on. Even Not years later. Definitely. So as um, long as you, as long as you have a basic knowledge of the early part of the 20th century, then I feel like you can definitely grasp everything from the story that you need to grasp to thoroughly enjoy it. Definitely, and history repeats itself too. So some of those events, you know, we've kind of seen in our own way. I mean, they it's, it opens during a pandemic. We may or may not have been through one. And by may not, I mean, we definitely were the last few years still are to an extent, you know, we've been through other wars. We've been through recession, which isn't the same as a depression, but still was really rocky. Uh, my dad worked in mortgages at the time. So this movie really hit close to home for me when I was a kid. Um, I was in middle and high school and uh, going into college during the recession. So a few years behind where George Bailey was during his story arc for that, but it's, to see that, you know, all of that happening again, when you watch this movie, I, I, at least for me, there's a lot of personal ties, even though it takes place 80 years ago. 
Well, and at the end of the day, that's what helps resonate a movie with the viewer is it makes that connection with you deep in your soul and it sinks its claws in and you can't let go of it. So mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why I love movies anyways. So, I mean, some of my all-time favorite movies of all time completely run the gambit of all over the freaking place from the wizard of Oz to some more contemporary type movies. So, you know, but you know, they all have that one thing in common though. It's they have a very relatable thing, a story where it really connects with me in some way, shape or form. And that's why, they've all become such intricate parts of who I am. So. Mm-hmm. Trying to think if I... Was there any facts that you have in your notes that you wanted to make sure that we get covered? Yes. I, I had a, um, I had a bunch because again, this is, is one of my favorite movies and there's a lot of just really cool things about the movie itself um the movie itself with it being made and about the actors and the storyline so one of the things i think is most interesting about the movie is it was initially conceived uh as a, a short story and the the author whose name escapes me at the moment had shopped it around it didn't really get anywhere so he ended up sending it out as a christmas card and then somehow that made its way over to Frank Capra and company. It went through a couple different screenwriters who tried different approaches. At one point, um, rather than Jimmy Stewart, Cary Grant was actually assigned to the uh, to the movie. And the endings were different. There was all sorts of different approaches to it before it finally landed where it landed. And there's a lot of like little little goofy things throughout filming and some things that are i can't remember the name of it but the when you think it's a fact but it's not a fact so a lot of people reference that you know burton or burton ernie from sesame street got their name from it's a wonderful life they didn't it's oh. just a weird coincidence yeah. um but there's other fun things nope. too so but it's still cute at the end of the day though i mean yeah i did oh, see yeah. that the whole burton ernie connection it's like because Burtner, well, Sesame Street didn't come up, you know, pop culture wise, probably for another 20 ish years after It's a Wonderful Life came out. So, yeah, but they have the alluded, to, yeah, they have alluded to it in other specials that they, um, the connection, even though it's not intentional, again, it's coincidental, but there's a, uh, a line of something about in a Sesame Street movie where they reference it. And um, another one that was, that I thought was funny. So there's the scene where they are, um, they're, they're at the Bailey boarding house and George is about to go over to see Mary. His mother's about to send him out there and he's outside with uncle Billy and uncle Billy's walking down the street towards home, drunkenly singing. He's so happy. Harry's gotten married. And you hear a crash and he goes, I'm all right. I'm all right. And it, as a viewer, we assume he's crashed into a bunch of trash cans. We are broken glass. We are everything falling. What happened was uh, one of the people who were working on the set 
knocked over a table um, full of, of different props and materials that fell and smashed to the ground. And the actor who played Uncle Billy played it off um, as if that had happened. So you see Jimmy Stewart in that moment break character and start laughing slash trying not to laugh. And the the poor guy who knocked everything over thought he was going to get fired. And the the story goes that instead Frank Capra gave him ten dollars uh, as a as a uh, raise or as a thank you for raising the sound integrity on the movie. So I just thought that was really interesting. I really like that too because um, unless you've actually done time in some kind of acting capacity. Mm-hmm. Being able to think on your feet like that is very much a very integral part of being a successful actor slash actress. Mm-hmm. Because you don't always, even when it comes to like, you know, reciting dialogue back and forth between yourself and a co-star, you know, mistakes get made and things may not happen right. And you have to be able to think on your feet and you know, help move everything along in the right fashion. Mm-hmm. So. Well, that's part of what makes great movies great is when you have, a, I think, a little bit of that freedom in the dialogue and with the actors to let them really be that character and make those judgment calls at times. Well, I mean, one of my all-time favorite actors to watch, period, to begin with, is somebody who I can guarantee you many directors did not know what they were going to get every day he walked on the set. And that's Robin Williams. I thought you were going to say him. <laughs> so, I mean, just the way he always, and it makes for some of the greatest characters that we've ever seen on the screen, whether it's, you know, Genie and Aladdin or Mrs. Doubtfire, or whatever. I mean, those were made iconic by the craziness and willingness to think outside the box and try off-the-wall things that Robin Williams did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe when he filmed The the Genie, I, if I remember correctly, they didn't try to animate ahead of time and then match the lip assignments. Um, They instead kind of let him do whatever he was going to do in the studio. And then they animated to whatever he said, because he was just throwing out so much and so much of it was so good. There was no point in trying to stop what he was doing. It was better to sort of ride that wave and then work the movie to match that. Um, Again, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Realistically, there's no way that, you can do the animation beforehand with him because (laughs) you may get something that matches up the first time around, but if you do it a second or third time, it every time it will be something totally different and you'll end up having to redo it anyway. So you may as well just get him recorded and then try and match it up afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think some of that, um, you know, while in this case, the actors were mostly sticking with sticking with the script, those opportunities where they had to either break character or to introduce a fun idea. I think, you know, you see some of that respected throughout the movie. Then um, you also see some things that were obviously planned ahead of time. But again, there's little Easter eggs snuck in and here and there. 
for those who are watching, if you know what to look for, um, one of the ones that that I, I thought was cool. So they have the gym floor that opens up with the pool underneath. And they mentioned that George recommended that design. And, you know, they're like, it saved us another building, uh, which harkens back to the fact that that's what George wanted to do. He wanted to build things. He wanted to do something great. Uh, and going back to the movie at the end, you realize he's built a wonderful life and he's built a town. He didn't just, you know, he didn't build a bridge. He didn't build a railway, but he built an entire community, which is, is something that you can't really compare. Um, but they talk about the the pool being under the floor. That's at an actual high school um, in California, and it is still used to this day. And when you're watching that scene, um, the person who pushes the button, I believe his name, they call him Othello, and he's, he's pouting because I think Mary was going to dance with him, and then she doesn't. Mm-hmm. And the actor who played that, was Alfalfa from the R Gang, the original Little Rascals. Oh, wow. I did not catch that. Yep. And if you think about the character in the Little Rascals, always pining for Darla, that kind of tracks. I could see him doing that. It really, it really does. And it kind of is a very fitting casting choice. Yep. I'm gonna have to go back and rewatch it now and see if I catch that now. Yeah, you can hear it in the voice. If you go to that scene and you listen to the voice and it goes "Hey," and then you think about if you have ever watched the actual the original R Gang and the voice, it does. It sounds like an older Alfalfa because it is. Um, But that one I always thought was cool. And when you watch it, just like in any movie, you'll catch like weird things here and there where you see the same person walk past twice, and that happens in this movie a couple times too. You'll see the same people jump into the pool a couple times across the different the different shots, and I believe if I am remembering correctly, I I had thought I had seen this before, and then I saw it noted in one of the like fun facts about it. Um, you see when Jimmy Stewart falls in, his toupee comes off. I don't know if that's one hundred percent true, but if you do watch him fall and you see something weird with his hair for a minute, and uh, if anyone has ever seen me on. Bracket Bastards, uh, I talk about hair, the two episodes I, I was on there for. Yes, she does. <laughs> Big into hair. Um, I don't but the, I just, that's one of those cool... I was either watching things. or I was on one of those episodes where... I think I was on one of the episodes you did that on. Yeah, I think... Um, or I was watching one of the two. Yeah, the most recent one where it came up I was doing a Sarah Palin impression, and then I found a mullet wig next to my the chair I was sitting in, so I was wearing that for part of the episode. <laughs> it was one of my bedrooms. Yes. Days. Either way, I was either there or I was watching one of the two, but definitely it was hilarious. Thank you. <laughs> so. Yeah, but that was a you know one of the, the fun facts there, and I loved in the beginning of the movie again. You know, his brother survives. Once more, spoiler alert, 80 something years later ish. Um, but again, growing up in New Jersey, so I live right on the Del or lived right on the Delaware and the Rancocas Creek, the town I lived in, Delanco. We had these two big bodies of water on either side. We also had a, a train and everything. So we had weird safety videos we would have to watch growing up. So, like train safety, everyone had to take a boating class in seventh grade. And we also had to learn water safety, which included um, in the wintertime, 
learning what to do in case someone fell through the ice. And so I remember watching this as a kid and you see Harry slides in the water. And the first thing George shouts is chain guys. And they're all in their bellies and holding each other's ankles and wiggling forward to go grab Harry. And that's something we were taught to do in like a safety class in elementary school from a video that probably dates around the same time they made this. My school didn't have like the best funding. Um, but I always thought that was really interesting. Yeah, no, and definitely hats off to um, George for having the wherewithal when the shit hits the fan to actually be able to, you know, just like that, mm -hmm. be able to think on his feet and be like, chain, and yep. everybody just snaps right in. I mean, because you don't have a whole lot of time, especially when it comes to breaking through and falling through the ice. You don't have a whole lot of time before hypothermia and all that starts to kick in. Yep. We're getting and stuck under. Pulling somebody out of an icy pond or river like that, it can be kind of complicated too. So you need to be able to think fast and react fast and get everything under control. Yep. And that's a characteristic you see in George throughout the movie is making these good solid by the book choices immediately in times of crisis so even when and even when he doubts himself he always goes with what the right thing is not what the easy thing is so in that moment he immediately goes chain we all get together we go save the brother easier option would have been someone go get a grown-up you know he goes he's working at the drugstore he realizes that his boss has put poison in the capsules doesn't deliver them, goes to try to ask for help from his dad. Dad can't help him. He has to rely on himself to make the right choice in that moment. Chooses not to deliver them, brings them back to old man Gower and trusts, you know, he, he makes the right choice. Same with later on. He gets the opportunity. He's supposed to, he's supposed to go to Europe and go to college. And his father has a stroke and he puts that on hold to do the right thing without question. This is what we have to do. And then again, the financial crisis. All right, we're spending our honeymoon money. His wife, you know, offers it. And that's a sign of a good partnership when you're going to work together. If you have a business, whether it's you running it or your spouse or both of you, you need to support each other all in. And she does. And he, he right away pulls that, keeps the business afloat. You know, at every juncture, he gets an opportunity to make the easy choice or make the right choice. And he always chooses the right choice. And that's part of what makes that climax towards the end, I think, so impactful because he has the the choice. He can make the easy choice. He can jump and get out of his problems, or he can make the right choice, which is to face what's happened and stand by whatever punishment he may receive. And he has that glimpse of what would happen if he made the easy choice versus the right one. And that's when he sees, you know, if he wasn't there, all these negative things would have happened. But that same token, if he hadn't made those right choices versus the easy choices, a lot of what happened if he hadn't been bored, could have gone the same way. And obviously he then chooses, he says he wants to live again, uh, which is a beautiful moment. The moment he says, please God, it starts to snow again. You see like the light switch kind of turn on and come back and it goes back to making the right choice. I'm going to be here for my family, whatever that looks like. And uh, it all comes out and works out in the end. Well, because even he's even resolved himself to the fact that even if I end up having to go to jail, it is what it is, but mm -hmm. I need to do the right thing and not take the easy way out, like you said. So he 
ultimately, you know, asked to have his life back, mm-hmm. is given the opportunity to have his life back. He goes home to a living room full of, you know, people that are ready to take him off to jail. And then you have this sweet, poignant moment at the end where literally everybody from Bedford Falls comes in dumping wads of money on his you know table to the tune of well more than enough money than he was going to need to pay that $8,000 debt off. Mm-hmm. And so down to the bank examiner who gives him some money before he walks out. I always love that. I love that look at the end. He drops the money and yeah, makes a face exactly. and walks away. Well, cuz I mean at the end of the day the bank guy was one of the people that was going to end up quote unquote, taking him off to jail. And he was affected so much in the moment that he here, you too. Here's some. Yep. And hands him off. It's such a great scene too, because that scene layers in so many callbacks to George's life throughout the movie. You see Annie, uh, I love Annie. She's one of my favorite characters. And she she gives the money she was saving for a divorce if she ever got a husband. And you see, um, I think it's Martini said he broke open the jukebox, or Gower broke open the jukebox. And you see all these people that he's interacted with throughout this whole movie who he's grown up alongside in this community. And it really gives a good sense that these aren't random people. This isn't just, you know, Mary went out and told the neighbors and they figured it out. I mean, she, these aren't just neighbors. These are people who he has become an integral part of their life. And as a result, they're a part of his. So it really does wrap the movie up very strongly because you see everybody that you've cared about this whole time coming back together at the end, um, all the way down to, to the bell ringing for Clarence uh, who, you know, opens the movie. Yeah. Well, and you know, like you said though, too, with, without him being in these people's lives, how different would all these people's lives actually be at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. You know, they, you know, you go back and look at some of the stuff like in that climactic moment when he's seeing Bedford falls without him being a part of it. I mean, even the, the town, the physical aspect of the town is not the same as it was without him because he's not there to help build the community up to what it was by his, you know, own hard work and dedication. And I think you also see during that period of time. So in his mind, it would have been better if he was never born. He talks at one point to Mary about, well, you would have married Sam Wainwright. And she says she never would have wanted to. And we go back, you know, if he wasn't born, she's not married to Sam Wainwright. She's an old maid. She's not married to anybody. Yeah. Um, you know, he thinks, you know, Uncle Billy would be be better off. You know, well, you know, Uncle Billy lost his mind. He's in the insane asylum. His mother's, you know, by herself running this boarding house, bitter and alone. And so it's not even just how he's impacted these people's lives. It's his perception of what life would be if he wasn't there is so far off base to what it really is. Because not only did he impact these people's lives, but his perception of what makes something better versus what is actually better is, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't line up. No, exactly. And at the end of the day, that's one of my favorite aspects of 
um, this type of story because, like, okay, one of my favorite authors is Stephen King, and he actually wrote a book a while back um, dealing with the Kennedy assassination. And uh, English professor from, or an English teacher from today goes back in time to try and stop the Kennedy assassination from happening. And then, you know, by doing that, by the end of the story, you get to come back to, okay, what is the world like now that he actually went back in time and stopped that from happening? It's not all, you know, it very easily could have been, oh, rainbows and sunshine and everybody lives happily ever. That's not the way the ending of the story was written, though. This, that, the other thing happens and, you know, life isn't always as great as you thought it would have been by stopping mm -hmm. that. I mean, all you're doing is steering, you know, history's course down a different road that it wasn't initially planned to go down. Yeah. And it, so, it kind of is that, that like butterfly effect thing where, you know, say you, you weren't stuck in traffic. Well, if you weren't stuck in traffic, maybe you would have been hit by a car. And if you were hit by a car, maybe the ambulance coming to get you wouldn't have gone to the heart attack victim. And the person who had the heart attack dies and they were going to cure cancer. So I'm a, I'm a big believer in everything happens for a reason. We just don't always find out what that reason is, or if we find out it may take a long time. And yeah. that's why, you know, if someone, if I, I have been asked before, you know, do you have any regrets or is there anything you would do differently? And I can't say that I would because who knows where things would, uh, would end up. And I think that same goes for most people. If you look back at the choices you've made as much as you may want to unmake them, would you be the person you are today? And would the people around you be the people they are today if you truly had that opportunity mm -hmm. to change that? And is that really for the better or is it for worse? Exactly. That is very incredibly well said. Well, thank you. So, um, oh, wow. I did not realize we're over an hour into the episode already. Sorry. Um, oh, no, 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 no. You're absolutely 100% fine. This has been so much fun. Um, I don't necessarily, I know you're on the other coast and I don't want to keep you all night per se. Um, so why don't we just go ahead and move into the, um, what about, what is it about this movie that you absolutely love? I mean, I know we've talked so I, a lot about it so far, but. Yeah. So I think what I love most about it is it's a universal story that not just everyone can relate to, but at some point, in your life. If you're not there and haven't been there already, you probably will get to the point where you think about what you had to give up or what you haven't accomplished. And you may start to feel that doubt. And if you, you take that moment to pause and look back again, you realize that it's because of these, these choices, good, bad, or otherwise that you and people around you have gotten to be where they're at. And that's what I love about it is it reminds you of that. Like, I definitely had dreams, you know, same age as George Bailey, fresh out of college, you know, or going even even going into college, what it was that I wanted to do and where it was I saw my life going. And 
due to circumstances beyond my control, I had to adjust and change those dreams to both for myself and for, you know, the people that I loved. And while I'm not in where the career that I saw myself in at the same time, if I hadn't made those choices, I wouldn't have my kids. I probably wouldn't be doing stand up or have written a book. Um, I wouldn't be as successful, I think, as I am now. I wouldn't have had the experiences and met the people that I've met. Um, I wouldn't have had an opportunity to, you know, work with people like you or, you know, bracket bastards or anything else. I, there's a lot of opportunities that if I go back and relive my life the way I thought I was going to, I've just gotten rid of everything that I care about and love about my life currently. And that's why I love this movie because it shows you what really matters. And just because you have these grand dreams doesn't mean you're not still living them in a different way. George wants to build things. He wants to build highways and railroads and, you know, big buildings. And he builds, again, he builds this community. He builds his family and does all of that kicking and screaming the whole way, <laughs> but he does it. And again, like Clarence says, it really has been a wonderful life. And I think this helps you realize that in yourself. So literally you took every word out of my mouth. <laughs> Not that that's a bad thing either. Um, but no, I mean, just to kind of sort of echo a couple of the points that you made so that I'm not completely being repetitive. But um, no, I mean, if there's certain aspects of my life that, you know, 20, 25, 30 years ago, you know, I had dreams as a teenager in, or in my early 20s where yeah, I wanted to be this, that, or the other thing. It didn't necessarily pan out. But at the same time, you know, 20 years ago, I never envisioned myself actually having a podcast and all of that as well. So by that standard, you know, if, you know, I became a successful published writer, you know, in my 20s, would I have gone on to become you know, have a podcast. And by that standard, would I have met yourself, you know, Amanda and everybody that I've connected with while doing this show that has become such an integral part of my life and very much quality friends that they have become. So, I mean, you know, just because that didn't work out the way I thought it was going to 20, 25 years ago, doesn't necessarily mean that I failed by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, it goes back to this one saying that I wasn't going to let the episode end without um, echoing something that Clarence um, left for George as a message. No man is a failure who has friends. So there is all of that. And there is that lesson to learn as well. So um, if you were going to rate the movie out of five stars, what would you give the movie? Out of five stars. Five stars are out of, this is, I'm going to tie in a random fun fact that I can't let us also close without mentioning. And it, go, it relates to stars and we'll use windows instead. How many broken windows of the Granville house, if that's okay. <laughs> and the reason I mentioned me. that is because, perfect, thank you. Reason I mentioned that is because uh, Frank Capra hired a 
a sharpshooter to shoot out the window for when Donna Reed is throwing the rocks. And she used to play baseball and that was not needed. She did it on the first try. She had a hell of an arm. Um, so on a scale of zero broken windows to five broken windows with five being the best amount of broken Granville house windows, I'm going to go five. I don't know how you can Solid make it rating. any better. So I like to remind people a lot the last couple months that um, back in the early days of the show, um, Amanda and I both like to give out five out of fives like it was going out of style. So we kind of sort of pulled back on that and started getting a little bit more reserved with giving out our fives. But this is definitely a movie I cannot go any less than um, I'm going to go five out of five ringing bells just so that we can definitely 100% make sure that Clarence gets his wings. But I like that you went with the non-violent Well, it's the counterbalance. You went with the breaking of the windows. I went with the, you know, the less, you know, lesser of the two evils. Mm -hmm. But it, either way, both still work perfectly. And this is such an incredible movie. And there's a reason why it's one of the top, you know, 20 movies of all time. Mm -hmm. You know, and it may be higher in your rating system than you know, my system or AFI system or whatever the case may be, but it's still, it's a great movie that I don't recall ever hearing anybody have anything bad to say about this movie. The so. only piece of feedback I ever heard someone say negative was that there are times when it feels too cheesy or ham actory, but at the same time, not only was that the style of the time in those moments with that level of emotion, I don't know that it's inappropriate. I think if you play like when they're on the phone together, which was shot at the same time, the conversation was shot in one studio while they were doing the conversation in the other studio. So again, Frank Capra being the director, he was loved to make it realistic for his actors. I think if you play that with any less passion and enthusiasm and emotion, and even though Jimmy Stewart, we, we know now Jimmy Stewart was doing that petrified, um, in which, you know, you can kind of get a little bit of a beat of if you look at it through that lens. I think if you do it with any less, it feels inauthentic. Yeah. Well, and I mean, like you said, style-wise for the time, I mean, this is, you know, 10-ish years after Wizard of Oz was made. The Wizard of Oz, I've had, I've heard people say the same thing about the Wizard of Oz, is it can kind of sort of be kind of cheesy at times but mm -hmm. like again like that's how that's the style from back then and how things were done and you didn't necessarily have the tools at the ready you know at your disposal back then that you have at your disposal today i mean you can't you weren't doing cgi and stuff like that back then no, and so, a lot of the actors back then, I think, started out on stage where you have to overact for people to see and get the message. And I think some of that translated to early early film years. Well, I, I would imagine a lot a lot of that boils down to some of those 
especially like the adult actors that came from also a history of working on stage where Mm -hmm. you have, especially on stage because you have to have big movement, big facial expressions because yeah, the person, (coughs) excuse me, in front can see you, but the person all the way in the back that paid the same amount of money that the person in front did, they're mm-hmm. not necessarily going to easily be able to see what you're doing on stage. So you have to overdo it. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, if, I mean, I feel like we've covered a lot. I feel like we still <laughs> left a lot on the table. But um, I think we did a good job at definitely having a good, solid discussion about one of the most amazing movies of all time. Um, as always, before I go, I have to thank the fans for being or the listeners for being here each and every week. You guys are amazing. I love you guys all to death, and you guys are the reason why here in six weeks the show will be turning three years old so thank you for being here each and every week um and as always i cannot let the show end without um thanking kate for being here finally and get coming on the show with us this was so much fun and um i definitely feel like we need to do it again because i feel like we have good conversational chemistry back and forth with each other and i feel like we could make some more good episodes so whenever you are willing and ready to come back you are more than welcome to come back so anytime you want to have a conversation about old movies and i get to dress appropriately i am here for it it's all about the hair (laughs) oh well then by that standard then i will be picking a movie rather soon and we can have a discussion we get you booked to come back because like I said, this was a lot of fun and I enjoyed it a lot. So um, before we do the coming up on an evening at the movies, would you like to remind your li- the listeners out there what you've got out there for them to check out? Definitely. And I also want to take an opportunity to thank you so much for having me on. I have been looking forward to this like you have no idea um, the moment. We got everything kind of set up. I was immediately telling my family, this is a family favorite movie for us. And it means the world that I had the opportunity to come on and talk to you about this today. Uh, so for those listening, again, my name is Kate Laverne. I am a stand-up comedian. Uh, again, you can see me all over the East Coast and based out of New Jersey near Philadelphia, primarily. I am an author and illustrator of uh, Mommy Needs Coffee, which is a you know adult-friendly children's book, as well as, again, Hot Mess Express, which... Theoretically, will be out before Christmas. Um, and uh, you can find all of that on Amazon. Uh, and I, I am going to mention, too, just one more really quick plug. Occasionally, you can find me on my friend Christy Knubel's podcast, How on the Go, for our MILFs and Silk uh, segment. And on the covers of Mike Hoff's poetry books, um, if you look him up on Amazon as well, you want to see some cool cover art and read some cool poems, Yeah, you can see that there as well. So, with that said, um, I actually was going to make the announcement that um, everybody's, well, an evening at the movies, favorite hole on the go, Miss 
Christy Knubel. We'll be back on an evening at the movies in the month of January. So stay tuned for that as well. She had actually one of the highest, most listened to episodes of 2023. So it's been a year since we've had her on the show. It was time we got her back on the show. She's a busy lady. Oh, she's insanely busy. Everything. Yeah, between her comedy and all everything that she does, plus her show. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. She's I don't inc- know how she does it all. She's incredible. She actually headlined a show uh, for me back in October and absolutely crushed it. She's one of the funniest people I've ever met. I will definitely second that sentiment exactly. Oh, not exactly, but I will second that sentiment as well um i haven't gotten the chance to check her out live because i'm on the wrong coast but i've seen video clips of some of the stuff that she does freaking amazingly hilarious if you guys are on the east coast in the region i highly recommend you go check both kate and christy out christiana thank you so um Coming up on an evening at the movies, um, I don't have it written down, but we're going to try and do it by memory. Um, uh, second part of Christmas Day double feature, um, Kevin and Amanda and I will be discussing Violent Night. Go figure. Um, we've got the program coming up on Wednesday the 27th, and then... Um, Pain Hustlers on January 3rd, Where the Heart Is on January 10th, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and one other episode, probably Christy Ann's. At some point, through all that mix, because that will lead us right up to the third anniversary episode and the announcement that I'm making in the other Christmas Day episode. So definitely, if you haven't listened to the Violent Night episode, at least tune in and listen to the beginning of that one for the announcement. So big news is coming. But again, thank you, Kate, for being here. This was so much fun. Sorry I waited so long to get you on, but I'm glad we got you on. Well, thank you again for having me. I have had a fantastic time and I love the show and just the opportunity to be on this is is a dream and I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate all the kind words and with all of that said, um, I think that's going to just about do it. So again, Merry Christmas to everybody. I hope you guys had a Merry Christmas and are going to have a happy new year. And at the end of the day, we hope you guys all come back for an evening at the movies. Have a good holiday guys. An evening at the movies is a proud member of the, I did not make these rankings podcast network. Other shows in the network include mass debaters, the simplest crush gasm, love is black men are the prize Crime Rewind, and Literature Reboots. You can find out all about our shows and more at idnmtrpodcastnetwork.com. Happy listening.